0: it's wednesday september 24th 2014 from slate it's the gist i'm mike pasca president obama speaking at the united nations today asked whether we will come together to reject the cancer of violent extremism the specific cancer in question the Sunni militant group isis or as the president calls them the ideology of isil isil so there is a terror. We know terror by its name, only we seem to have changed the name. Sometimes they change the name. So ISIS was the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, but they also became the Islamic State of Iraq and Al-Sham, which is uh, which is another word for essentially the area. Uh, the French call it il l'état islamique, and Iraq N Syrie, maybe. I don't know. I'm trying. But it doesn't matter what the French call them, because we called it ISIS. Then we called it ISIL, except when members of the administration call it something a little different from ISIL. Here's Samantha Power. President has said we're not going to allow ISIL to have a safe haven. So now it's ISIL. It has been suggested that ISIS, because it is the name of the Egyptian goddess, maybe that's too empowering, maybe that sounds too potent. So calling them ISIL... That's a little less. And then calling them Issel, it's like a question, you know? Is, ISIL ill going to hurt us? But I don't think Barack Obama calls them Issel as opposed to ISIL, Because I think when Barack Obama, basketball fan, says ISIL, it reminds him of Dan Issel, who's a famous basketball player in the Hall of Fame. And he can't quite equate terror with the sweet shooting University of Kentucky graduate. Anyway, I guess we'll sort out the name. After all, the bombs are dropped and missiles are fired. On the show today, a spiel about race and an obscure position in football. I'll give you a hint. The spiel and its topic will be both long and snappy. And a talk, a really nice conversation with Adam Davidson of Planet Money about what economists say to each other when they know no one is listening. But first, beyond the nomenclature, how about the policy of the United States and Middle Eastern extremists? So as we heard at the top of the show, President Obama has made a centerpiece of his foreign policy talking to the United Nations today about ISIS or ISIL or the Islamic State or the MTV show, The State. You know who we're talking about. He's being forceful. He's being blunt. And he has a coalition that is attacking with bombs and with missiles, the forces within Syria now. Well, joining us to talk about this entire issue, about where it's going to take the presidency and why he's made the decisions he has, is Jeffrey Goldberg, who's the national correspondent for The Atlantic. But still, he writes about a ton of international issues. Hello, Jeffrey. Hello. So here's what I think about ISIS, because I know you were wondering... I think they're bad dudes. I think the world would be better if they were eradicated. But they're not 10 feet tall, and they don't piss hellfire missiles. And somehow, perhaps we've built them up to this point. Is that useful or is that harmful?
1: This is my theory of Obama. Obama is genuinely, though he's cool hand Luke generally, yeah. he's, he's actually genuinely shocked by their grossness, you know, by their just sheer... This is a guy, remember, in the speech today, he used the word evil to describe them. He's not... A guy who throws words around like that.
0: And he's not Mr. Black and White, and that's kind of a black and white. And he's not Mr. Black
1: and White. This is not the George W. Bush administration. You know, when George W. Bush gets mocked for, mocked for you know, using the word evil, but but Obama used it here. And, I mean, he's right. Their they're evil is all get out. But I think the point, there's an interesting policy point here, which is that they are pure evil. They can't be allowed to continue to, like, absorbed territory in the Middle East for any number of reasons, which I'm happy to go into at length or not, depending on your proclivities. But the important point is is that they're not actually the most dangerous terrorist group to us right now. And that group, weirdly, is al-Qaeda, the group that we thought was decimated years ago. You know, And, and there was a hope, obviously, in the part of Obama that when he killed bin Laden, they would all say, well, okay, that's it, we're going home. But it's a franchise organization. They've got uh, a focus on killing Americans. ISIS, until very recently, has not had a focus on killing Americans. So I- I'm I'm worried that you know we-, we can worry about these guys who are you know 27% more disgusting than Al Qaeda in their personal behavior uh, and beheadings and everything like that, or we can worry about the group that actually has elaborate plans to kill us here.
0: Right, so a couple points. One is that yes, of course, they're horrible but evilness, even though it's used to generate public support for a policy first actually by Obama's critics making that he doesn't get how evil they are argument, and then by Obama himself I mean, evilness is not justification or is not good enough for what dictates American foreign policy. The guerrillas of the shining path in Peru were terrible people doesn't mean we should have intervened there. It's that second part of what you said, that they're Marching and taking territory is the thing. They're evil and effective.
1: No, no, no. Right, right, right. They did kill Americans, um, and that's a bad thing. And generally speaking, a president should react to people who kill Americans like the way those two uh, journalists were killed. But here's the point. Left unmolested, ISIS would eventually try to work its way down to Baghdad. You've got the world's largest American embassy in Baghdad. You've got direct American national security interest in Baghdad. Imagine the pictures of helicopters on the roof of the American Embassy in Baghdad trying to move 3,000 Americans out of that country, out of that capital. That's bad. Even worse, Jordan. Jordan is the linchpin of stability or what remains of stability in the Middle East. They're a direct threat to the existence of Jordan as we know it. If they conquer Jordan, that would put ISIS on the border with the West Bank, and with Israel, so you would have a direct confrontation between the Jewish state and the jihadist international. That would bring in ground troops, if necessary. You would have a complete collapse of the Middle East, and of course, ISIS also would threaten Saudi Arabia. You can't have the world oil market completely undermined by this gang of barbarians who are then droid. I think all of what we're talking about now is is keeping them busy running from our bombs so mm-hmm. they can't seize more territory.
0: Right, but I wanted to ask you about this killing American things. You know, obviously, it is important for America to act to protect its citizens. And yet, when you think about the word terrorism, it's not as if that tactic didn't work. They had killed thousands of people. America, sure, the policy experts cared. The people who are always looking at this area cared. But until they killed the Americans, the American public wasn't paying attention. It didn't seem to really motivate our leaders. So isn't that a point of terrorism? What happened to the idea that if we let those extreme actions dictate our policies, then the terrorists win?
1: You know, I, I, I see your point, and I'm, I'm reaching now for some sort of World War II analogy, which is like a weakness of mine. Okay, so the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. If we react, then they win. Well, I but you know that it's thousands. I, it, it, it's, it's an it's attack on an army of
0: thousands of people versus two people. You know, people. Here, here's the thing. Yeah. The
1: other thing that we forget about terrorism, and I'm not one of these people who's overplaying the threat of ISIS. I don't think it's an immediate threat at all. One of the things we forget is we have to remember what the ultimate goals are and judge the chance that they would reach their ultimate goals if we did not try to stop them. Obviously, they're not interested in killing just two Americans. They're interested in killing Americans and Westerners and all of our friends in the Middle East, if they can. And so you have to, as president, project out a little bit and say, okay, it's not just two, two is what they've done so far. They're capable eventually of doing a lot more damage. And so I have to stop them. But I totally get your point. And with any luck, those who survive the coming war against ISIS within ISIS will will rue the day that they executed those two Americans, because I really do believe it's true that we wouldn't be where we are today if they had not, if they had just sent them home.
0: That's what Obama said. If he were advising ISIS, he'd pin a note on them that said, stay out of this. This isn't your
1: fight. This isn't your concern.
0: Yeah, that's of course. (laughs) That's an Obama view of the world and probably would preclude him from being an advisor to ISIS.
1: Right. Do Not you, a job I would want, by the way, advisor to ISIS. Do
0: you, no, no. Bad health right. care plan.
1: Financial advisor, maybe. That wealthy.
0: <laughs> That's true. They knock over banks. Do you think that the foray into Syria, yes, it's crossing an international border, and yes, it is without the explicit invitation of the government there. So right. is this seen as a, an extension of what was going on, just sort of... Um, a leeching into a next right. front in a war, or is it seen as a whole new battle, a whole new?
1: It's war. seen by people who are um, Westphalian fetishists. I like that, by the way, Westphalian fetishists. I just thought of that. That's good. What, people who are uh, who are obsessed with the Westphalian nation-state system obviously are going to think of this as a completely new revolutionary move because we've crossed an international border. Except that we've crossed an international border that doesn't really exist. In fact, we've crossed the border into a country whose leadership we have called for. Uh, we've, we've called for the, the destruction or the removal of the leadership of Syria. So we're not going to go seek their permission to go attack one of our enemies inside their country. So to me, it's more evolutionary. I understand from an international law perspective and from people who adhere to the sort of Westphalian nation state system that this is a big deal. There is no functional border anymore between these two countries. The country that we're bombing currently, Syria, is a, it's so crazy. This is, by the way, this whole conversation leads to a, a larger point, which is if you can't explain what we're doing to educated but non-specialist Americans, then you probably have a problem, and this is what I worry about with this case. This is so damn complex, and everybody is a bad guy in this scenario, pointing their guns at other bad guys that it's very, very hard to understand. And if you can't explain it, then I don't know how you justify it in the long run. This is a big worry.
0: Jeffrey Goldberg, national correspondent for The Atlantic. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you. If you look at the issues that matter to voters right now, Jobs, the economy is number one. And then the issues that have been popping up, world instability, this will certainly affect uh, some of the big Senate races. But there's an issue that's so prevalent, we sometimes don't even mention it. And it's the issue of taxation. I mean, it kind of is the uber issue of why the government is involved in our lives. And Republicans generally, I mean, there was a time when Republicans used to require each other to sign, a I will not raise taxes under any circumstances whatsoever polls and in very conservative states, that still goes on. But the the issue of taxes is so fraught and to many voters, I don't know, assumed to be kind of intractable and kind of a debate between low taxes and high services or let's get some good services versus let's not pay a lot of taxes. Well, Adam Davidson... NPR's Planet Money, the founder of NPR's Planet Money is here, and I wanted to talk kind of broadly about taxes, Americans' perceptions of taxes, and uh, what economists say and how that might differ from what Americans think about taxes. Hello, Adam. Hey, Mike. Can I voice just at the beginning of this
2: conversation that this is terrifying to me to talk about? Because I feel like there are two major bummers about talking about taxes. So one major bummer is that there's just a whole way that economists in general, whether they're left-wing, right-wing, whatever, think about government spending in an economy that's just different from how other people think about them. Mm -hmm. Because economists are right and people are stupid. Is that why? Um, It's head versus heart, right? So when you say jobs yeah. and the economy, I yeah. think that for a lot of people, the way government spending would connect to jobs would be very direct. Yeah. So um, if if you're, you know, on towards the left, you might say, oh, government should spend money. And create jobs. Government should Go hire to, more school teachers, yes. hire more police officers, build bridges, create jobs directly. Right. And if you're conservative, you would say government should get out of the way right. and let entrepreneurship take over. And they have this over. whole phrase, the job creators. The job creators. Yes. Which is that, never government, can't right, be government. Right, yeah. That there's this opposition. In fact, they even
0: say government has never created a job. It was. It seems odd that they would say that and people would nod and agree.
2: I can give you that argument, not that I necessarily agree with it, but I can give you the argument, which is basically to pay your parents, the teachers, to pay you and me who are have been public radio employees and receiving at least some tiny, tiny shred of government, almost bit. nothing. Mm-hmm. But that money has to come from somewhere else in the economy. In the economy, it would have been doing something else. And so this is the argument that mm-hmm. government can shift where the jobs are, but it can't actually create jobs but those two framings the the left framing and the right framing either government creates jobs or government destroys jobs that's just not the model that economists would generally use that that determines the overall employment level so anyway there's a whole kind of geeky nerdy version of this conversation that's very hard to argue. Right. Because it's, I don't know. I always feel like- And we'd have to
0: wear cosplay costumes and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I
2: feel like very didactic when I talk about it. Like, it's just not how other people see it, but it is how I see it. Then the other thing is this head heart thing, which is like, when I think of government spending, one of the first things I think about is my dad lives in housing that is sponsored by the government to help artists live in Manhattan. Now- I'm glad my dad lives there. I'm, I would never want to kick him out. I grew up there. I loved it. I had a great childhood there. But intellectually, I'm not sure that that is an optimal use of government money. And I'm not sure that was the kind of program that necessarily was the best way even to help artists or to help New York City. And and that, I think, is, is a like a microcosm of how government spending works. That well, we, if... we really love the things we love. Yeah. And we don't really want to hear some abstract intellectual argument about why the thing we love or the person that you know, your parents and their school teaching degree or whatever, we don't want to hear like some abstract argument about how that's, you know, maybe, maybe not optimal. Right. Anyway.
0: And so the thing that the federal government spends on mostly is, you know, defense is like, what, a quarter of the overall budget. And then you have the entitlements, mostly Medicare, and then you have Social Security. Right. And then there's servicing the debt. And I've almost told you the entire budget. Right. Right. And no one likes to service the debt, but you got to service the debt. So let's take that off the table. And those other three things I mentioned. You know, almost everyone wants some version of a military, you know, just so the Canadians don't invade. And then people like Social Security and people like Medicare and to some extent Medicaid. Well, that's it. I mean, that's pretty much what we're talking about. They're relatively popular. And yet, at the same time, we demand, to some extent, that policy... Not relatively popular. Wildly. They're wildly Overwhelmingly. Yeah. Like you, oh, 80, 90% percent of Americans... If you even float a rumor that someone's going to touch your Social Security, people go crazy. And yet, at the same time, we hate raising taxes. Right. Yeah. Social Security, Medicare, defense, that is somewhere in the high 80%
2: mm-hmm. of, of your tax dollars at work. Everything else is pretty
0: much in the irrelevant category. And it... Yeah. I mean, what's weird is... Like, the, like I mean, think about that. The arguments we have of the Department of Education, almost literally a rounding error in the federal budget.
2: Yes. Yeah. All the roads that the yes. government spends money on, all the medical facilities, the entire housing and urban development, all of welfare, <laughs> the farm subsidies. Solar panels. That's yeah, a hot one. Yeah, <laughs> solar panels. Yeah. yeah. I think most people who are not receiving farm subsidies yeah. are, think farm subsidies are probably not a great use of government money. Mm-hmm. It's like 30-something billion a year. That's not great. That's probably could be used better. But it's irrelevant in a $3 trillion government pie and, and a $15 trillion economy overall. And these numbers are even more irrelevant when you realize that Government spending has a huge impact on how big the pie is to begin with. So our GDP, our economy overall is around $15 trillion, a little more than $15 trillion a year. And in all sorts of complicated ways, government spending has a huge influence on why isn't that $17 trillion or could it have been $13 trillion? All of that is to say, yes, most of the debates about how government spends money is politicians finding a way to grab someone's heart and make it seem as if some narrow thing they care about is really what government spending
0: means, either good or bad. So then the debate becomes that extra, you know, 12% that includes tiny little fractions of should we be giving foreign aid welfare, these little things that are symbolic but really don't have an impact on the on the budget. Basically, all of American
2: politics comes yeah. down to this really basic math problem. So what you could imagine politicians doing is actually coming together and saying, hey, guys, we know you love these programs. We also know you don't love paying taxes. So we're going to have like a national dialogue and we're going to kind of decide, do you want to lower taxes a little and get a little less in Social Security?
0: Do you want to pay a little more taxes and have an even more well, robust... Well, I guess I would say in a way that's what elections are, sort of a national dialogue, a very crude national dialogue full of yelling and 30-second attack ads. Okay, but have so you ever heard it laid out that no, clearly?
2: you're right. No. And, it, and now is not a great time because yeah. now we're in a very, very slow recovery. We have huge unemployment. Now is not a time to have that discussion. Six years ago... Would have been a good time. Six years from now, hopefully, will be a good time. That, I mean, it would be like, you know, if my wife and I were like, God, every month we have less money, and I don't want to talk about moving. I, I like where we live, and I don't want to talk about the fact that we eat out every night. Right. I don't want to discuss yeah. those issues. Right. I want to focus on maybe if we got rid of the hbo package on our cable or maybe if i didn't buy so many you know if i started buying recycled batteries yeah it's these tiny
0: little things that seem like extravagances that's a good analogy so look we're talking about elections we're talking about how politicians frame the issue of spending how voters react usually it's one side saying hey i'm gonna point to this program that's wasteful spending it'll be a tiny little program like a welfare queen or something like that it's the other side saying he's coming after your social security totally stupid dysfunctional argument do you think that there are good arguments that are easy to have do you think that politicians are engaged in this because the narrow slice of undecided voters are really uninformed voters you know do you have a solution to sort of elevating the spending conversation to so that the conversation's better and maybe the policies get better the other conversation would be the kind of
2: I don't know. Is it the Ward Cleaver conversation like what's the model of like the the kind and loving but still firm and, and solid I'd say parent Ward I'd say
0: Ward does it, yeah.
2: Would be Hey America, here's the two things you want. You want these programs,
0: you want to pay this much taxes. They don't add up. Discuss. That would be good. <laughs> I think maybe remember when Ross Perot had his charts, some version of that. Maybe someone more avuncular. Mitt Romney looks a lot like Ward Cleaver. But he's not the guy to do it based on his policies. That would be interesting. I wonder, I wonder what would really happen. I mean, happen. it is. Like, Mitt
2: Romney probably I know what in would Massachusetts happen. would be a really
0: good model. Yeah, you know but... what would happen? You know, Wally, your mom, Wally Beebe, your mom and I have been talking, and you want a lot of things, but we don't have the money. You'd like it. I'd like it. His rival politician would say, he's coming after your Social Security. <laughs> and he'd
2: lose by and 80%. he'd lose by 80%. Yeah, exactly. It's not... Yeah. Now, there is an argument that the reason we can't have that conversation is because we have time and -hmm. there isn't actually a crisis, that when there is a crisis, we'll have the crisis conversation. I want
0: to live in that system where only a crisis gets addressed. Don't you live in that system? (laughs) Yeah, I, I do. Adam Davidson is the founding editor of NPR's Planet Money. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. This is a story about race, recrimination, and the hot-button issue at the very center of that caustic mix, long snapping. Long snapping is the most specialized job in the NFL. It's arguably the silliest job in sport, not counting Zamboni Driver or Bongo, the mascot of the Milwaukee Bucks. The long snapper is the guy who, on a punt or on a field goal, snaps the ball through his legs either 15 or 8 yards that they could do this upside down and backward with more velocity and accuracy than most NFL quarterbacks can do it standing up is amazing, but amazing in a burp the alphabet backwards kind of way. However, I was surprised, not shocked, not chagrined, but surprised to come across a long snapping fact. In the NFL, of the 29 players who are full-time, specialized long snappers, all 29 are white. This stat, which was unearthed by Andrew Powell Morse of Best Tickets, prompted a question out of me. And that question was, why is that? Actually, my thought wasn't even that developed. On Twitter, here's my exact quote after mentioning that long snappers are entirely white in the NFL. Hmm. I think I used only two Ms in hmm, so as to preserve characters. Chris Cuomo, who hosts the CNN program New Day and who is a fairly huge football fan, was also struck by this fact. And intrepid interlocutor that Chris Cuomo is, he looked at the fact that the NFL has no black long snappers and asked simply, "Why not?" Good question. Here are some of the answers Chris Cuomo and I got. There are no long snappers, qualified-slashed-experienced enough to play, but of course you blame racism, all caps, it's always racism. This dude goes on to add, you hypocrites need to wake up. Another guy says, deep snappers don't get the celebrity status or fame like key position players, something black athletes crave. And Joe777 writes, another day, another racial scorecard. Joe I like. He's a Twitter follower of mine. He's, let's say, a frequent sparring partner. The other guys just got sucked into a Pesca Cuomo football vortex or something. What the exchange has revealed to me is something a little more subtle than something we think we all know, which is discussing issues of nuance and race on Twitter is like lecturing about quantum physics via Limerick. However... There once was a lady called Wright who could travel much faster than light. She departed one day in a relative way and returned on the previous night. So it can be done. Both things can be done. But tweeting about race can be done poorly. On Twitter, there are a lot of flat-out racist thoughts expressed. But to me, the most common hostile reaction to a tweet about racism or perceived racism is... For a Twitter follower to say that I or we in the media talk too much about race, complain too much about race, use the word racism way too much, cite the phenomenon racism too often as an explanation for something. In fact, here's a tweet after my long snapper thing. Blacks complain about racial makeups of entities like police departments, but never any outrage about disproportion in sports. Right except for the fact that that is entirely untrue. In fact, I wasn't even citing racism as the explanation for the lack of black long snappers, but I really honestly wondered about it. Why? And I got accused of playing the race card. All right. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with an honest question about a phenomenon that's racial, but maybe an answer that's not even racist. To see why there are zero black long snappers, I talked to two men who are at the forefront of training young long snappers. Jamie Cole is director and coach of Cole's Kicking, Punting, and Snapping Camps. He's coached thousands of high school and college athletes. He trains many NFL starters and ranks athletes nationally for ESPN. Cole said he didn't know why there were no African-American long snappers. He did note that there were very few black college long snappers also, and in his camps, very few black kids show up wanting to be long snappers. Now, with long snapping, you pretty much have to go to a camp. You have to get some private training. And it's not just to learn the technique, but to make yourself known to college coaches who rely on people like Cole to tell them who the good long snappers are. The other big name in this field of training young long snappers is Chris Rubio, who runs Rubio Long Snapping. He, too, has the ear of coaches. He's trained 100 long snappers who are now earning college scholarships. He's a long snapping guru. He points to a couple issues. One is resources. Now, the camps aren't that expensive. They're 350 to 450 bucks in Rubio's case. And Rubio also lets the kids write a haiku about long snapping to qualify for a scholarship. And yes, if they get the rhyme scheme of the haiku wrong, they're disqualified, I asked him. Cole, for his part, says he thinks any kid can afford 300 bucks for his camp. Maybe you have to take an extra shift at McDonald's. But you know what? That's actually not true for the poorest of the poor out there. But it's more than dollars when we talk about resources. The picture became clearer as I talked to these two guys. I asked Chris Rubio, well, let's say a kid's a great wide receiver. And he'll be told by coaches, by adults in his life, he'll be told, you go to this camp. You want to try to get on this team. But isn't that true for long snappers? I mean, it's a position on the field. Rubio says no. Rubio says long snapping is 99% motivated by the players themselves and by parents who want a college scholarship coaches rubio says really don't even emphasize long snapping so you need self-motivated and informed families who know a little bit about working the system who are going to seek out a niche potential profession to get their kids to specifically work on a technical skill well guess what in a nutshell that is the anti-formula for populist participation, where God-given ability will grab the attention of the gatekeepers. Also, and Jamie Cole acknowledges it, one reason there are no black long snappers is that there are no black long snappers. It perpetuates itself. Young black athletes think about what position they should play. They don't even think about long snapping. And as we've demonstrated, no one is thinking about it for them. So is this racism? Well, I don't think anyone's getting in the way of a black, young, potential long snapper and saying, you just don't have the makeup for this, son. I do think coaches won't think long snapper when they see a hardworking but not too athletic black kid as quickly as when they see that kind of white kid. But I think the explanation is cultural, economic, and inertia. There are some racial aspects to all those things. But now we have an answer. Why no black long snappers? And unlike some people on Twitter... I'm not sorry I asked. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi went to camps in high school to learn to become a producer of Slate Podcasts. Problem. There were no podcasts, and the camps were fronts for Scientology. Mike Volo, who edited today's show, he edits lots of shows. We never give him credit. In that way, he is the field goal holder of the GIST family. Andy Bowers, producer of Slate Podcasts' family, signed him up for numerous summer programs to try to qualify for a much-sought-after NCAA tug-of-war scholarship. That experiment ended in a rope burn. You can listen in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. We're also on Yo! Download the app. Subscribe to Podcast. As soon as the show's up, we'll yo you slate.com slash gist email is what you go to to subscribe to our daily email when the show is up we're on facebook.com slash slate gist our twitter feed is slate gist our email is the at slate.com my high school years were mostly spent in the caring of grooming and training of a young baboon I was told it was my path to college, so I plucked the nits from little Bobo, I bathed him, and until he had adolescence when he could tear the arms out of my sockets, I roughed house with Bobo in my family's backyard. When it came time to list my achievements in my college applications, I remember the note I got back from a certain admissions officer at the nation's most respected conservatory. You idiot! We said bassoon lessons, not baboon lessons. Which I never really understood as baboons can't even properly work the spit valve on a trombone, let alone reach 7th position.
1: Hey, I'm Dan Kois. And I'm Allison Benedict. This week on Mom and Dad are Fighting, we're talking to Slate's Mike Pesca about whether you should let your kid play tackle football. Search for Slate's Mom and Dad are Fighting in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.